Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today, we're going to talk about Trump and Biden's competing town halls and how Trump set himself up for the biggest failure possible and the conclusion of Amy Coney Barrett's Supreme Court confirmation hearings, including some of the most dangerous positions she espoused. And we have my interview with Mayor Pete Buttigieg, whose recent Fox News appearances have catapulted him back into the spotlight, and for good reason. I'm Brian Tyler Cohen, and you're listening to No Lie. So let's talk about the Trump and Biden competing town halls. The rundown is that Trump and Biden were scheduled to appear together for the second debate on October 15th. The debate commission announced it would be virtual, what with one of the candidates being infected with a deadly virus that's already killed 220,000 Americans. Trump threw a fit because how dare we acknowledge the pandemic that he failed to contain and he threatened to bail. So Biden called his bluff and set up a town hall on ABC. And then Trump set up his own town hall on NBC because he is physically incapable of not being the center of attention. And I'm going to be honest here. I was not super pleased with NBC for making this decision. And I obviously wasn't the only one because it was basically as if they handed Trump exactly what he wanted, right? He was able to to rewrite the rules to benefit himself. He didn't want to debate Biden in a virtual format because that entire format would be an ever-present reminder of his failures with the pandemic. And even debating Biden unto itself already proved a disaster for Trump. His approval ratings after the first debate plummeted because as a human being, Trump is not able to not be belligerent. It's like he will combust if more than four seconds go by and he's not a petulant lunatic. And so so with this town hall, he was able to skirt those things. It would be in person and he wouldn't have to be compared with someone whose level headedness would only make him seem more insane by comparison. So I wasn't thrilled, but I'll be the first to admit that I overlooked one really, really crucial detail of Donald Trump holding a nationally televised town hall. And that is that Donald Trump would be there. Trump's own worst enemy himself would be on that stage for 60 minutes straight, showing the American people exactly who he is. And that is not helpful for Trump. (laughs) Here's just a taste of what we saw. Here's what he said about the online conspiracy group QAnon. While we're denouncing, let me ask you about QAnon. It is this theory that uh, Democrats are a satanic pedophile ring and that you are the savior of that. Now, can you just once and for all state that that is completely not true and disavow QAnon in its entirety? I know nothing about QAnon. I just told you. I know very little. You told me, but what you tell me doesn't necessarily make it fact. I hate to say that. I know nothing about it. I do know they are very much against uh, pedophilia. They fight it very hard, but I know nothing they about it. They believe it, it is if a satanic like call run by the deep state. The subject, I'll tell you what I do know about. I know about Antifa, and I know about the radical left, and I know how violent they are and how vicious they are, and I know how they're burning down cities run by Democrats, not run Republican by Republicans. Republican Senator Ben Sass said, quote, QAnon is nuts, and real leaders call conspiracy theories conspiracy theories. He may be Why right. not just say it's crazy and not true? He may be right. I just don't know about QAnon. You do know. I don't know. No, I don't know. Here's what he said about SEAL Team 6. 
Just this week, you retweeted to your 87 million followers a conspiracy theory that Joe Biden orchestrated to have SEAL Team 6, the Navy SEAL Team 6, killed to cover up the, the fake death of bin Laden. Now, why would you send a lie like that to your followers? It. You Can retweeted it. That was it. a retweet. That was a, an opinion of somebody, but, and that was a retweet. I'll put it out there. People can decide for themselves. I don't the take president. a position. You're not like someone's crazy uncle who no, can no, just retweet no, no. whatever. That was a retweet, and I do a lot of retweets. And frankly, because the media is so fake and so corrupt, if I didn't have social media, I don't call it Twitter, I call it social media, I wouldn't be able to get the word out. And the, well, word, the word is, is false. and you know what the word is? The word is very simple. We're building our country stronger and better than it's ever been before. Let's and that's what's happening, and everybody knows it. Those were just a couple examples, but, but the point is that this is a guy who couldn't condemn QAnon, even when they were presented as a group whose existence is predicated on battling a satanic pedophile cult that purportedly runs the government. He couldn't disavow this idea that Joe Biden plotted to have SEAL Team 6 killed. The thing that I keep forgetting is that what will hurt Donald Trump the most is just letting him speak. You know what the correct answer for denouncing QAnon is? I denounce QAnon. You know the correct answer for uh, why did you retweet a conspiracy theory to your 87 million followers that Biden tried to have Navy SEALs killed? I shouldn't have done that. Period. The bar is so low for Trump that if he was able to say, uh, yeah, my bad, not only would his insanity not be dominating the news cycle yet again, but I guarantee that people would say, oh, wow, look how presidential. Like, the bar is so low. That if Trump can get on stage and not douse the podium in gasoline and set it on fire, the media would fall over itself and award him all the points and crow about his new tone. And yet every single time, even though that bar is on the floor, he still manages to trip over it. Now, with that said, I know the anti-Trump sentiment is there, right? That, that's clear. But we need more than something to vote against. We need something to vote for. And dystopian hellscape aside, once you switched over to the Biden town hall, what you got was a clinic in good, steady governance. He explained his plan to raise taxes on only those making $400,000 per year, uh, which would free up $1.3 trillion to use. He went on a 10-minute explanation of how he'd convince black voters to take part in a political process that has largely failed them by extending policies that would help the black community build wealth. He spoke about the real-life implications of a 6-3 conservative court on the ACA and a woman's right to choose. He called the 1994 crime bill a mistake. There was humility and logic and statistics underscored by empathy, which, for those too young to remember, is when a president is capable of understanding the feelings of another human being. So look, was I pissed off that Trump is changing the rules as he goes and seems to have gotten rewarded for it? Sure. But let's not fool ourselves into thinking that Donald Trump standing in front of the American people is ever going to help him. It's not. When he's not in this right-wing Fox News bubble, when he actually has to answer for the things that he brought upon himself, like retweeting that Biden plotted to have members of her own military assassinated, he looks like a clown. The thing about an incompetent egomaniac is that they will always make themselves the center of attention only to display that incompetence. So if Trump wants a town hall, sure, put him on air every day. Give him a nightly show. Because what hurts Trump the most is Trump. And yet the only solution he can fathom is more Trump. Also, one more point on this and Trump's narcissism, and that is that what Trump cares about are the ratings, right? That's what this presidency is for him. It's an extension of his reality show, and the only measure of success isn't whether his presidency is successful, it's whether he gets high ratings. And so what better test for him than to go head-to-head with Joe Biden, who 
He has branded as boring and confused and too old and bad for TV. So now we have dueling town halls the exact same time. And if there's any advantage, it's probably to Trump, who would be airing on the entire family of NBC channels, NBC, MSNBC, CNBC, while Biden just has ABC. And yet Biden still managed to bring nearly a million more eyeballs than Donald Trump. Joe Biden, who who Trump himself has painted as the ratings death knell. That is who beat him. And look, these ratings wars are one of the dumbest things to ever happen to the American political system. But that aside, the reality is that's all Trump cares about. And he lost. And so is this stupid? Yes. But can we take momentary joy in knowing that Trump propped up ratings as the arbitrary measure of success that he cares most about and then lost in a head-to-head battle that he himself orchestrated? Absolutely. Let's move over to Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearing. Now, while this confirmation wasn't marred by the nominee screaming about how much he loves beer or or literally crying, I want to make sure it's absolutely clear that Amy Coney Barrett would be arguably the most conservative justice on the bench. Here's what she had to say about climate change. And um, do you accept that COVID-19 is infectious? Um, I, I think, yes, I do accept that COVID-19 is infectious, that that's something of which I feel like, you know, we could say you take judicial notice of. It's an obvious fact. Yes. Do you accept that smoking causes cancer? I'm not sure exactly where you're going with this, but, you know, the, the notice that it's smoking just causes... A question. The question is what it is. You can answer it if you believe um, Senator Harris, yes, every package of cigarettes warns that smoking causes cancer. And do you believe that climate change is happening and is threatening um, the air we breathe and the water we drink? Um, Senator, again, I was wondering where you were going with that. Um, You have asked me a series of questions like that are completely uncontroversial, like whether COVID-19 is infectious whether smoking causes cancer, and then trying to analogize that to eliciting an opinion on me that is a very contentious matter, opinion from me, that is on a very contentious matter of public debate. And I will not do that. I will not express a view on a matter of public policy, especially one that is politically controversial because that's inconsistent with the judicial role, as I have explained. Thank you, thank you, Judge Barrett. And and you've made your point clear that you believe it's a debatable point. Here's what she had to say about Roe v. Wade. Do you agree with Justice Scalia's view that Roe was wrongly decided? Senator, I completely understand why you are asking the question. But again, I can't pre-commit or say, yes, I'm going in with some agenda because I'm not. Here's what she had to say about a president being able to delay an election. On July 30th, 2020, President Trump made claims of voter fraud and suggested he wanted to delay the upcoming election. Does the Constitution give the President of the United States the authority to unilaterally delay a general election under any circumstances? Does federal law? Well, Senator, if that question ever came before me, I would need to hear arguments from the litigants and read briefs and consult with my law clerks and talk to my colleagues and go through the opinion writing process. So, you know, if if I give off-the-cuff answers, then I would be basically a legal pundit. And I don't think we want judges to be legal pundits. I think we want judges to approach cases thoughtfully and with an open mind. So if it sounds like Amy Coney Barrett is a far right-wing activist, it's because she is. Her not being able to acknowledge that climate change is real is the position of a far-right activist. Her refusing to accept that Roe v. Wade is established precedent is the position of a far-right activist. 
her not being able to say that a president can't delay an election when federal law dating back to 1845 clearly states that only Congress has the power to change the date of the election is the position of a far-right activist. And that's the craziest part here. Like, for years, we've had to listen to Republicans condemn judges nominated by Democrats as activist judges when they'd allow legislation to stand that ran counter to Republicans' backwards agenda. It's always uh, liberal activist judges litigating from the bench, when, in reality, the party that's installing activist judges are Republicans. I mean, this is a clinic in projection. If you have a judge who is so blinded by her right-wing ideology that she can't even bring herself to concede that it's not legal for a president to delay a federal election because Donald Trump has made that a tenant of his re-election campaign, then guess what? That is not someone who calls balls and strikes. The fact is, at some point we have to recognize that this court no longer legitimately reflects the will of the vast majority of Americans. This is a court shaped overwhelmingly by a Republican Party that's won the popular vote in one of the last seven presidential elections and confirmed by a Senate where Republicans who are in the majority represent 15 million fewer Americans than Democratic senators. And their singular focus is to overturn precedent like Roe that enjoyed the approval of three quarters of this country. They're looking to dismantle the ACA, which Republicans have tried more than 70 times to overturn in Congress before realizing it was futile. They're looking to strike down voting rights laws so that they can continue to entrench Republicans' minority rule, who will then turn around and continue nominating more Republican judges in a vicious cycle that is just the complete antithesis of democracy. I've said this a thousand times before, and I'll say it again. The court needs to be rebalanced so that we can live in a country where the will of its constituents is actually reflected in our government, as opposed to the will of a minority of hard-right conservative ideologues. Rebalancing the court is not a scary concept. What's scary is the effects of not rebalancing the court. Next up is my interview with Pete Buttigieg. And if you've been hearing his name more and more, it's because he's been offering a clinic to Fox News viewers about Trump's failure of leaderships with moments like this one. Well, there's a classic parlor game of trying to find a little bit of daylight between running mates. And if people want to play that game, we could look into why an evangelical Christian like uh, Mike Pence wants to be on a ticket with a president caught with a porn star or how he feels about the uh, uh, immigration policy that he called unconstitutional before he decided to team up with Donald Trump. Folks want to play that game. We we could do it all night. But uh, I think what most Americans want to hear about is are our families going to be better protected than they have been by this president who's failed to secure America in the face of one of the most dangerous things ever to happen to our country. I don't think my views on Fox News are any secret, but if we have Democrats like Pete who can do this on Fox News, then we need to be on that network every single day making our pitch to the American people. Okay, so today we have a former presidential candidate and mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Right off the bat, you have been killing it on Fox News. And now I understand why you go on Fox in that we have to be willing to meet people where they are, right? And, and I agree, by the way, a good number of my 900 videos are based on things that are said on Fox. Have you had any trouble, though, reconciling the fact that it's basically, you know, a, a toxic propaganda network and it does confer a degree of legitimacy when you go on? So the way I think about it is that, uh, you know, some of the people on that uh, network and definitely the the people behind that network are not good faith actors. But I know that a lot of people are tuning in in good faith and uh, a lot of people get most or all of their information there. 
I can't blame somebody for not understanding our perspective if they've literally never heard it. And I know a lot of people who are kind people who believe in uh, decency and empathy and uh, they, they believe in treating others well. And, uh, you know, sometimes you scratch your head thinking, how could you be on board with this president? But if they're literally getting different facts, then you begin to understand how that's possible. And we may not win everybody over, uh, but I think we have a responsibility uh, to, to reach people where they are. And, and that's why I go on. I'll draw the line with certain opinion hosts that I just don't think uh, you can have a good faith conversation with. <laughs> right. But if, if there's a way to reach people uh, who just might think a little bit differently, uh, and frankly, to fire up our people too, uh, which, which is uh, uh, also worth it, uh, then uh, I'm going to take every opportunity. It's it's kind of an amazing experiment because you generally don't see Democrats going on Fox or or if they do, it's a hit job, kind of like you alluded to. But but you've been successful in basically bulldozing through whatever they throw at you. So I'm I'm curious to know whether it's been successful. Have you gotten feedback from Republicans? You know, uh, often I hear from Republicans who say, you know, I've been a Republican for a long time, but uh, I like what you're saying, or I'm going to vote differently this year. Uh, that's not only because of, uh, of my work or one TV appearance, but uh, I think it's really uh, about creating a space that lets people know it's okay to change your mind. People may have voted the way they have in the past for any number of combination of reasons. Uh, but if we paint people into a corner uh, and make them feel like they're not going to be welcome in our coalition, uh, then, of course, almost by definition, they, they, they can't uh, cross over and vote for us. It's all about creating room to do that. And by the way, never watering down our values, as, as you've seen. I'll, I'll say the same kinds of things on Fox that I would say on, uh, on any other network. Uh, but it's about making sure that we, we say it loud and clear and say it in a way that respects uh, where people are coming from, knowing that not everybody was uh, starting out agreeing with us. And to build on that, I mean, the fact is, with regard to our agenda, our agenda is more popular with the American people. I mean, Democrats' yes. stance on health care is more popular. Our stance on women's reproductive rights is more popular on climate change, exactly. on labor and union protection. The fact is that if we have effective communicators, our lift is lighter because the ideas that we espouse are already more popular than the agenda on the right, which is less health care, fewer women's rights, kowtowing to fossil fuels. It's a great point. I think Democrats, for some reason, got to be kind of afraid of our own shadow. Yeah. The American people already agree with us on issue after issue after issue. Uh, it's uh, uh, the current Republican Party that, that's gotten itself into a, uh, a minority position disagreeing with the American people on so many things. It's one of the reasons why they're now turning to the courts as a kind of rearguard action. So a lot of what we got to do is just go out there with confidence and cut through some of the noise and the nonsense. And we can always rest our footing on the fact that we are better better aligned with the American people than yeah. the opposition. That's a, that's a great point. And I do want to talk about the Supreme Court, but I have one more question about, uh, about Fox. And that is, has Fox been less likely to bring you on now that you've been effective? You know, I, I did notice I haven't been called back in the last few days, but, uh, uh, you know, I imagine they also uh, are just interested in, in uh, having interesting conversations. And I can always promise that that'll happen. Yeah. So moving on to the Supreme Court, obviously, we're in the middle of a contentious confirmation battle. Now, Republicans are desperate to, to reframe the conversation onto Biden's stance on court packing and away from the actual dangers that nominating Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court holds. So what's your response when the right tries to make this, this confirmation battle about the sacrosanctity of the number nine on the Supreme Court? 
So we're not going to get thrown off by by those arguments. Uh, the reason that uh, we are on good footing now, even though uh, it's it's probably not going to be reflected by the behavior of, of the Senate, is that most Americans also agree with us that the winner of this presidential election now underway ought to be the one to pick the next justice. And, and Americans agree with us on, on things like preserving health care and the right to choose and marriage equality. And we want to make sure we keep the focus on that. Um, uh, now, if Republicans want to argue about uh, packing, we can go there because they've actually changed the, the size of at least two state Supreme Courts just in the last decade in order to get their way. Uh, they don't have a one leg to stand on in, in this debate. But uh, I also think that their desire to have that debate uh, is motivated by wanting to talk about anything but what's on Americans' minds, which is the threat to our health care in the middle of a pandemic. You know, uh, two points on that. The first is that they also changed the number of Supreme Court justices on the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, That's right. by, by virtue of, of holding that seat out uh, in 2016, sure. that number was changed to eight. So, you know, exactly. they're, they're, uh, on, on, one, on one hand, they're crowing about the, the, the sacrosanctity of the number nine, but they had it, you know, just four short years ago, they held it at a different number because it suited them politically. Yeah, for, for Senate Republicans to suddenly get interested in upholding norms is, uh, is pretty rich <laughs> at a time like this. Right. And, and to build on that, I mean, that's that's the thing. Like, I, I think Biden is smart to avoid this question because it's clearly in bad faith. Republicans don't care about defending the institution of the Supreme Court any more than they care about enforcing the Hatch Act. But but they're they're happy to wield it, uh, you know, because they're just looking for a new Hillary's emails to screech about on an endless loop. So, uh, you know, I, I do think that it's smart that Biden isn't handing them that gift. Totally. So these these Federalist Society judges that are being put forward by Republicans are as activist judges as you can get. So why has the right been able to convince people that they're the originalists while, uh, while Democrats are, you know, hyper-partisan shills when it's conservative judges who are undoing legitimate legislation like the ACA and threatening legitimate precedent like Roe and Obergefell? You know, the way they talk about the Constitution uh, reminds me of the way some people talk about Scripture. Uh, it can only mean one thing, and it happens to be the exact interpretation that I have, and no other interpretation is valid. That's the basic attitude. And then they say it as though that were self-evident. But if it were self-evident, we wouldn't have judges. The whole point of courts is that we need human beings to wisely interpret the, the meaning of the letter of the law. Uh, that that's literally the job description of a judge or a justice. And, uh, you know, this this claim of, of fidelity to somehow mind read uh, the, the 18th century mentality uh, as if that's going to give us better case law and better outcomes is, I think, just an excuse to get conservative policy outcomes that they can't achieve politically because they disagree with the American people and try instead to get them in the courts. It is judicial activism uh, cloaked in the language of uh, of judicial restraint. That's a great point. You know, the irony of a Republican woman like Amy Coney Barrett calling herself an originalist is that if she was actually an originalist, she wouldn't even have the right to vote, much less be a judge on the Supreme Court. African-Americans would have three-fifths personhood. You know, it, it's ironic that Republicans can enjoy all the benefits of progress, but fall back on this idea of originalism when it suits them. It just shows you that uh, at the end, uh, for them, this is about power. And unfortunately, that that might be the only language they understand, which is why a major electoral victory and I think an electoral punishment for those members of the GOP who deep down know better than to be on board with Donald Trump, who said as much back when they were competing with him and who have now uh, uh, made some pretty awkward 180s. I think it's time for there to be a political consequence to that. Maybe that's what it takes to reunite them with their conscience. 
Yeah, yeah. We'll see how effective we are at, uh, at, at appealing to their sense of shame. But uh, in the meantime, hopefully the election will, will do a lot of the heavy lifting. So let's move on to, uh, to coronavirus. With coronavirus, it's almost like, what can you say? On one hand, you have one guy who is so reckless that he himself caught the virus and became a symbol of his own failures at containing it. And then you have Joe Biden, who has been preaching a consistent message of safety and responsibility since day one. But I do want to get your, your opinion on this latest talking point, and that's that uh, Trump is the only one in the race who's had it. And so he's got that life experience, Pete. And, and that's invaluable. That's something that Biden doesn't have. So how much of an advantage is that for Trump? <laughs> I can't think it's much of an advantage since, uh, again, in, in his case, uh, his contracting this came in the context of reckless disregard for even basic safety measures. Uh, look, uh, uh, he doesn't seem to have any more insight on how to deal with this now right. than he did three weeks ago. Uh, and uh, he also didn't understand how to deal with this six months ago when it would have made the greatest difference. Uh, but lives, it's never too late to save a life. And lives depend on getting more competent leadership as quickly as we possibly can. Yeah. Can we, uh, can we, can we see your dog? Sorry about the intervention there. It's uh, he's uh, on patrol. There must be something that's got his attention. Yeah, I could try to. Chaston can get him to. You want you want to have a buddy appearance, buddy? You want to want to be on TV? There you go. All right, <laughs> buddy. This is it. This is his debut. Buddy is um, excited to be joining us. Uh, yeah, has some very strong views on uh, constitutional dead hand originalism, uh, yeah. but I think mostly he's just. Open for dinner. Sorry about the interruption. <laughs> no problem. I think the benefits of, of of dog people have been put on full display after having a president who doesn't have a dog. <laughs> so um, I I do want to talk about you know building on what you said about uh, Trump's inability to 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 really learn from having contracted this virus, and that was evident within minutes. I mean, even when he was an actively hospitalized COVID patient, he decided to go into a car, into a hermetically sealed vehicle with his own secret service agents to wave at some friends. Right after he got out of the hospital, he went up on the, the Truman balcony and took his mask off. I mean, he is a, a, a walking monument to the fact that he hasn't learned a single thing about how to deal with coronavirus, even after having had it himself. Yeah, you'd think this might be a humbling experience, but it seems to have had the opposite effect in his case. And it's unfortunate because he's in a position to lead by example. And, uh, you know, in addition to the policies that presidents establish, the example that they represent often uh, means just as much. You know, it's something that that every mayor, uh, every governor, you would hope every president thinks about the example that you set. But this president's continued bad example may well have more consequences in terms of more people getting infected. Right. And moving over to Joe Biden, I mean, he is uniquely prepared for this moment. He, not only did his administration successfully oversee other pandemics like H1N1 and Ebola, but he'd be taking over a country in mourning. I mean, there are 215,000 dead Americans. We're losing a thousand Americans a day. And so much of Joe Biden's identity is predicated on the humbling experience of loss. So we really couldn't have a president better suited for this moment than, than Joe. That's right. He's got the attributes that I think our country is going to need to be called together, to be called to our highest values, to be guided through a period of, of, of loss. 
uh, but also to be rallied into a spirit of, of overcoming. And I think on everything from the attitude he takes toward climate change, which is uh, uh, let's confront this in a way that creates jobs and opportunity to uh, the spirit that he's going to uh, take toward conquering the pandemic, which is uh, let's come together, look after each other, uh, uh, learn from science and medicine and get the job done. That's the kind of leadership that we need right now. And uh, he is uniquely suited to the moment, even more than uh, I imagine anybody could have guessed when he first stepped into the race last year. So I want to move over to uh, the topic of religion. And that is because Democrats have largely ceded the religious arena to Republicans. Now, you're one of the few people who hasn't, and you've actually been really effective here. But can you explain this phenomenon for people, myself included, who are unable to understand how you can have a demographic predicated on on their adherence to religion, like evangelicals, who so overwhelmingly support someone like Donald Trump, who has cheated on his wife and cut funding to hungry seniors and locked up children escaping crime and poverty. He, he is the antithesis of everything that Christianity purportedly represents. It's astonishing. And again, I think it speaks to the power of habit. Look, I know a lot of people who grew up in an environment or a setting where being Republican was just the same thing as being respectable uh, or uh, being uh, family oriented or being Christian. But I think that's breaking down uh, largely because of Donald Trump and his behavior, which demonstrates as never before that God doesn't belong to a single political party in the U.S. And this is a chance to call out to voters of faith. Uh, and, you know, uh, Joe Biden would be, I think, only the second uh, practicing Catholic uh, ever to uh, take the, the office of president. Uh, somebody who lets his faith guide him morally, but also doesn't let him uh, himself uh, feel uh, any need to impose his interpretation of his religion on anybody else. And, uh, you know, what's so strange is uh, in this White House, in this administration, you got Donald Trump, whose behavior is uh, really a slap in the face to both progressive and conservative interpretations of religion. And then you got Mike Pence, uh, who claims fidelity to uh, uh, to an evangel- evangelical faith, but then teams up with this president. And all, all I can keep thinking of is, uh, you know, at the pearly gates, if if any of us were to hear, you know, I was uh, I was hungry and you did not feed me. Uh, I was a child and you locked me up. Uh, I was uh, um, uh, a senior and you cut my access to medicine. What are we going to say? Yeah, see, this is why they're not letting you back on Fox. <laughs> so I do want to, I want to go over, move over to you for a sec. You won't answer this question, but I'd beat myself up if I didn't ask. If you could have any job in a potential Biden administration, what would it be? Uh, I mean, the honest answer is uh, wherever I could do the most good. And, you know, it's it's uh, for hopefully the president-elect to decide uh, if and when uh, that makes sense for me. What I can tell you is that uh, I'm doing everything in my power to make sure there is a Biden-Harris administration. And then when there is, I'll do everything in my power to support it, whether that means uh, returning to government or, or uh, cheering and uh, cheering it on and supporting them from the outside. So at this point in the campaign, it's about reaching that tiny sliver of Americans who are still undecided, right? Or, or, or who might not think it's worth it to, to go to the polls. What's your elevator pitch to the stragglers out there who are still on the fence between Trump and Biden? So for those still deciding uh, how to vote, I think the main message is so much is on the line for us. And if you don't see your own future, your own income, your own livelihood, and maybe your own life on the line, uh, 
uh, consider that of the rest of us. Uh, uh, you know, all of us have our reasons. Uh, for me, it's uh, family members whose lives depend on the Affordable Care Act not being eliminated, as uh, Donald Trump wants to do. Uh, it's the fact that my own marriage exists uh, by the grace of a single vote on the U.S. Supreme Court. That's what it means to me. And I would ask uh, people who maybe feel a little bit indifferent uh, uh, to at least consider how uh, in different ways uh, so many Americans are, are going to be impacted personally and directly uh, by what's going on. Now, there's another set of folks, as you mentioned, deciding whether to vote. And to them, I would say, uh, look, we know that this system uh, has its flaws. The only way to fix that is to make your voice heard and your moment of maximum power as a citizen, power over all the things that make you mad or make you glad about this country, the things you tweet about, the things you protest about. Uh, the one time that uh, those in power uh, literally have to listen to you is the moment that you go in and vote. Don't waste that moment. Well said. So if you want to hear more from, from Mayor Pete, you can check out his new book, Trust, and his podcast, The Deciding Decade, and, and hopefully on Fox News, making, uh, making Rupert Murdoch's day just a little bit worse. So Mayor Pete, thank you, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Thanks again to Mayor Pete. Okay, a couple of notes. I'm doing daily live chats on Instagram, so if you want me to answer some of your questions, follow me on Instagram at Brian Tyler Cohen. Also, with registration deadlines behind us, our job is not done. You need to have a plan to actually fill out your ballot and get it where it needs to go. You all know that I've partnered with Vote Save America. They have a tool that I myself use to fill out my ballot called the Build Your Own Ballot Tool. Go to votesaveamerica.com ballot. I'll put the link in the episode notes. Type in your address and your exact ballot will come up. Every race and every ballot measure, along with endorsements and explanations. It is the best tool that I've seen so far. From there, the site will give you exact directions on where you can go to vote in person whether there is early voting, when it begins and ends. If you got a mail-in ballot, it'll tell you where you can drop it off safely. Please use this site. I gain nothing by pushing it. I just think it's the best resource that we have. It's what I use. It's what I suggest for my friends and family. You can't go wrong. One last thing. We have a couple of weeks to go. So if you are angry or shocked, if you've lost someone to a virus that wasn't contained, if you've lost your job to an economy that was mismanaged, if your health care is at risk or, or your voting rights are under attack, if you want agency over your own body, if you don't recognize the country that you live in anymore and want to do something about it, this is how you make them listen. You do it with your vote. So take yourself and your family and your friends and do your part to save this country. We're in the home stretch, so please make every day count. That's it for this episode. Talk to you next time. You've been listening to No Lie with Brian Tyler Cohen, produced by Sam Graber, music by Wellesley, interviews captured and edited for YouTube and Facebook by Nicholas Nicotera, and recorded in Los Angeles, California. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your preferred podcast app. Feel free to leave a five-star rating and a review, and check out briantylercohen.com for links to all of my other channels.